0: say to you this morning through his word. So if you would follow along with me, please, in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Would you pray with me again? Father, this morning, we thank you for the blessing of having our kids with us, many of them that would go to junior worship sitting with us in the pews today, Lord. We pray that you would help them, that they would hear something from your word that would encourage them, that would point them to Christ. And Lord, for the rest of us, Lord, we're praying that you would indeed speak to all the things that are on our mind, that you would speak to all of our desires, especially this morning, as we consider this final commandment and the weight of it as it comes at the end of these tables of your law. And Lord, we're reminded as we pray that we are unable to fulfill what your requirement is. So we thank you that we come to you this morning cleansed by the blood of Christ. We are his, we have no fear of condemnation and the law that once showed us that we deserve death and that we had no hope apart from you now reveals to us the freedom that we have in Christ to live a different way, to live the way you have designed us. So Lord, would you help us and propel us into uh, this week ahead of us with reorganized and correct desires that glorify you and that match up with how you've made us to live in this world. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to the final commandment today, and it's kind of an interesting thing. If you think about the progression of, of how these commands have come, you probably wouldn't imagine that covetousness would be the last, the big grand finale, right? You know, when you go to see fireworks, you always look forward to the grand finale. You can tell it's almost over and you can stop swatting mosquitoes and sweating and all the terrible things that are associated with that. I like being outside. But that grand finale is that outpouring of all the best part of the fireworks, right? And we kind of anticipate, especially as we go to God's word, that as we come to the end, we'll be like, okay, this is the big one, Right? This is going to, I mean, we already looked at murder. We looked at adultery. We looked at stealing. We have honor your mother and father. We have all these other things. And then we come to, you shall not covet. I mean, this isn't even something that we could look around at each other and say, yeah, you're coveting right now. You're, I can tell, oh, you were deaf. We don't know, do we? But these other ones, you know, if, if somebody was going to go out and hurt somebody, we could say, hey, that's, that's murder. I can see that. That's wrong. Why is it that we come to the end of the Ten Commandments and God says, hey, one more thing, you shall not covet. You shall not desire something that doesn't truly belong to you. We will kind of walk through this passage this morning is considering covetousness as having disordered desires, disordered desires. I know it's been a long time since we've done a Lord of the Rings illustration, and you guys have been asking me week by week enough of this Chronicles of Narnia stuff. Give us the good stuff. Back to Tolkien. And so here it is. Because covetousness plays a very heavy role in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings saga, doesn't it? Who would you say is the one that you could see covetousness on his face throughout the whole movies? Smeagol, right? And Gollum, both of them. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? I know we just said that when we look at this last commandment, we say, hey, this is this is kind of an invisible sin, and yet, it's also not so invisible, is it? And it's fascinating, too, because what does that one ring do when you put it on in this story? It makes you invisible. No longer able to be seen by whoever is after you. Whoever would do you harm, whoever would stop what you're doing, you put on the one ring of power and suddenly you are invisible. It's incredible. Because there's, there's also more ancient stories that that um, play off of this idea of a magical ring that turns you invisible. And what, what would you do if no one could see what you were doing? And all of us good people are saying, well, I wouldn't do anything different than I'm doing right now. You've got to be kidding me. However, when we look at our hearts, our deceitful hearts, as we talked about last week, it wouldn't take us too long to think, you know, there are a handful of things. Even if it was just, I would like to go to the doctor's office without a mask on, no one would be able to see me. We can come up with a multitude of these things. And, and surely that was part of why Gollum loved this ring, and he called it his What? Precious, the thing that he must have. And so as we go through these movies and books, depending on what your choice of media is, we see that freedom from this one ring is the ultimate goal of the whole story. And there's a great scene, the Council of Elrond. I'm sorry, I know I'm spending way too much time on this already. In the Council of Elrond, where everyone's sitting around the table, elves, men, dwarves, everybody is represented in this council. And they're sitting there and they're saying, this thing in the middle of our our circle... This little ring is the key to our greatest enemy's greatest accomplishment. And we have to destroy it. We have to take it to one particular place to deal with it. Nowhere else can deal with this ring. You can't just throw it into any old volcano. It has to be Mount Doom. And there's this great silence in the movie when Elrond says, one of you must do this thing. Nobody says anything until little old Frodo comes up and says, okay, fine, I'll do it. I'll take the ring to Mordor. And then his friends say, okay, we'll go with you. Right, Freedom from the ring means so much to them they realize that unless this ring, they can't just hide it, they can't use it, they have to destroy it. And so the story launches off into this beautiful epic of friendship and of failure and of fear and conquering those fears and, and conquering temptation. It's such a great story, of course. But in this we have Gollum's undying covetousness. My precious He had it for something like 500 years, is that correct? Some many hundred years, and mythical characters can live however long they want, apparently. He had it for so long when he loses it, he suddenly covets it, and he even realizes it because he calls Frodo the master of the precious. So he knows this ring doesn't belong to him anymore, but it's the one thing that he wants. His covetousness is undying, and in the face of that, as Frodo journeys with Gollum through the second part of the story, he constantly looks at him and sees himself in the future. If he were not to destroy this ring, what this ring would do to him, it would destroy him. It would make him the same as Gollum, obsessed with this one thing. And yet, in The Fellowship of the Ring, one of the best parts of the story, and it's only the first part of it, you guys, if you haven't seen these movies yet, you got to watch them. But one of the best parts is towards the end when one of their, their friends, Boromir, is tempted to take the ring from Frodo and he, he, he aggressively goes after him to try to get it from him. And he fails and Frodo has to put the, the ring on and become invisible and run away. And then he finds Aragorn, the, the one who was supposed to be the king. And he goes to Aragorn and he even just goes ahead and offers the ring to him. He said, would you take the ring? Is that what you want from me? And Aragorn has this great moment. And the movie does it so perfectly where he just folds Frodo's hands and says, I would have gone with you into the very depths of Mordor. Aragorn overcomes this temptation. He overcomes the covetousness when it seems that no one else really can. Because everyone deals with covetousness. We're not all Gollum crawling around on all fours looking for our precious. But in our hearts, we're not as far from that as we might think. We all have inordinate desires, disordered desires. Now, Kevin DeYoung in his book on the Ten Commandments has a really good point here that I want to make at the beginning of this, and that is that this does not mean to make us unfeeling creatures without hopes or dreams or appropriate ambitions. Okay, So back you know 100 years ago, the word desire would only have a negative connotation to it. Today we can say, well, no, desire can be good, right? We can have good desires. We can have desire for more Christ in our life. We can have desire for fellowship with other believers. Desires can be good. So let's not take covetousness and say, I'm going to want nothing in this world because God has created us to desire things. And so as basic as it might sound, let's keep this in the forefront of our minds that covetousness is disordered desire. It is Gollum wanting something that is not only not his, but not right for him. And so with us. The New City Catechism, which we use for junior worship and is a great resource for teaching theology to your kids. The New City Catechism, when the question asks, what is required in the 10th commandment? To extrapolate it more, it says that we are content not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us. This is how covetousness comes in. It's when we see what something, somebody else has that we want. And in that process, in our desiring of something that is not ours but belongs to another, we are actually doing more than simply wishing we had something. We're making a statement about God, that God is not enough, that God has not given me enough, and that God has wrongfully given this other person something that he really ought to have given to me. Again, this is the capstone commandment on purpose. Because so far, it doesn't sound like it's too deadly, right? People love to talk about the seven deadly sins. What in the world does that even mean? As if there is a sin that's not deadly? What is the wages of sin, people? Death. That's it. In the end of the book of Revelation, as John lists all the people that were being thrown into the hell of fire, he says, even all liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire. That is terrifying. God does not let any evil go unpunished, and his punishment is ultimate. He's serious about this. So when we come to covetousness, we can't simply say, oh, this is an easy one. This is going to be one of the hardest ones for us to deal with. Mostly because it's a fast track for us to resentment, to resenting God, to resenting people whom we are meant to love, by the way. This idea of covetousness becomes a sort of Google search engine that when we have this disorder, disordered desire in our hearts, when covetousness comes in, it comes in as that empty search bar and says, what do you want to do with this? There's all sorts of things you can do with it. Let me give you 10. You can commit idolatry. You can commit false worship. You can commit blasphemy. You can break the Sabbath. You can dishonor your parents. You could kill someone or hate them in your heart. You could commit adultery. You could steal something or you could lie. All the other nine commandments are the overflow of covetousness, of disordered desires in our hearts, wanting something that is not meant for us and our expression of that Is covered in all the first nine. So the tenth is, in fact, a great capstone because it says, hey, look, this is where it all starts. No murderer wakes up one morning and says, hey, I'm going to go kill someone. It's a long road. It begins with covetousness, it begins with a desire that is disordered, that is against what God has granted to that person. And they say, I'm going to take this action into my own hands and do something about it. So, what do we covet? What do you covet this morning? What do you want that is not meant for you? These can be obvious sinful things, right? We can desire evil things in our hearts. We can also wrongly desire good things in our hearts. They can easily become idols for us. Now this text gives us seven things. Look at it one more time in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. His male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Of course, God is saying there is no appropriate context for coveting. And he gives these seven things that basically boil down to three things that we can covet in a very simple way. We can covet relationships. As he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. We can covet, that can, that can be expressed in a, a desire for marriage. It can be expressed in a disordered desire for even Friendship. Or for uh, prestige, you know? I want to be friends with the boss so that I can have a raise when it's time. I mean, it's not a bad desire, but when they become more ultimate, when they consume us, when we think I need to have these things, then we are coveting. Sinclair Ferguson, I believe, is the one that said later on that we'll see here. The covetousness is just taking something that we want and making it a need in our own minds. And God has made it very clear There's nothing we need besides him. So we covet relationships. We covet authority. Moses specifically tells the people of God, you shall not covet your your neighbor's male servant, female servant, his ox, his donkey. The authority or property in that as well, possessions, things that people have. Oh my goodness, how many of us, the last time our car broke down, almost immediately would have seen a brand new car drive down the road in front of us and said, oh man, if I just had that, if I could just grab onto a new car or, you know, the, the electrical in my house is a total mess and I just, if I could have a new house, you know, it's very quickly, you know, the voice of reason comes in and says, well, maybe you could do something about the electric. And I go, no, it's time for a new house. That's what I really need. Tired of when I have to change one light, I have to turn the power off in my whole home. Those little things prompt us so easily to covetous attitudes. It is basically the step of saying, if I only had blank, I'd finally be content. If I only had a new car, if I only had a new house, if I only had a new spouse, if I only had a new job, if I only had a new neighbor. I mean, the list is endless. You can fill in that blank. But notice that it's not just simply saying it would be nice to have some of these good things. Because it is nice to have good things. The, this commandment is not saying you shouldn't enjoy anything in life. You should live a life of absolute solitude, of poverty, and there is righteousness found. That's not the gospel we believe, because that still works righteousness. And Christians for 2,000 years have thought if I could just get rid of all of my earthly desires, then I wouldn't ever have to worry about covetousness. The Bible tells us you're going to have to worry about covetousness until you see Jesus. There's nothing you can do to avoid the temptation itself. You have to battle it. You have to overcome it. As God said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is to have you, but you must overcome it. So what do we covet? What is it that we go beyond just saying it would be nice? And we go to the point where we say, I need it. That other person has it. And therefore, I cannot love that person. Because this is indeed in that second section of the Ten Commandments. The first four clearly having to do with our love for God, now our love for our neighbor. So beyond just our own internal dealings with covetousness, we also have to think about, what does that do when I covet something that someone else has? How, do I, how does that affect my relationship with that person? How does it, because we might be able to say, well, it's not a big deal for me to see somebody who drives by in a brand new car and say, oh, I wish I had your car, you Spamoni, whoever you are. God calls us to love everyone who is our neighbor. That is, anyone you see with your eyes. They are your neighbor. And even if your relationship is just that quick moment of them driving by and making you wish you had their car, you're called to love them in that moment, people. God is serious about his commands. There's no on and off switch. You don't take a weekend or a vacation away from obeying God. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus fulfills the second portion of these commandments. And, and we know how we fall away from this love and fall into covetousness because we, we fall into covetousness when we just see other people who have these things. And this happens even in church. We can do all we can. We can put all of our efforts and all of our energies into separating ourselves from the world, and we still have to gather as other people of God, and, and there's a lot of people in here that it wouldn't be too long for you to have a couple conversations and say, man, I wish I had, or if only I could just, if I could sing like David or Sarah, right? And and to, it's kind of funny how we deal with those kind of things, because We kind of dismiss the whole fact that musicians and artists and athletes and all those people who have these amazing talents, they're not simply waking up and we're, oh, I can sing. This is amazing. You practice, right, musicians? Yeah. And yet we look at them as if they just have something that God has given them that he didn't give us and that we're left with nothing and it just doesn't sound fair. Think about this with your kids. I have two of them. So this happens very easily and very frequently. One kid decides to play with Toy A. Kid 2 decides to play with Toy B. Kid A sees, wait, Kid 1 sees Kid 2 playing with Toy B while they have Toy A. And what do they say? I want Toy B. Why? Because Toy B is better than Toy A? Not necessarily. Toy A could be a 3,000-piece Lego set And Toy B could be a scrap of paper. But you still see kids looking at it and going, I have to have that. Why? Simply because it is not theirs. And we laugh because it's adorable. But it's also so sad, isn't it? Because we are the same way. And this is our problem. We are meant to have purified perspectives of others. Jen Wilkin in her book on the Ten Commandments says, it is impossible to want the best for another while wanting things, especially their things if we're going to have purified perspectives of others and support the good work of God's blessing in their life, covetousness is going to be the number one thing against that. Against you being able to come in and rejoice with your brothers and sisters when they say, hey, this great thing happened this week. Well, great thing didn't happen to me. I don't care what happened to you. If you're not here to commiserate, then get out. Right? When we're in misery, when we're in those situations of life, those conditions where things aren't as we want them to be, anybody who has good news is an enemy, right? That's covetousness. Bless you, sister. (laughs) And this is our problem. Our hearts bend towards desiring what belongs to others to find happiness. Because if we see happiness on their face, and we miss it in our hearts, we become... Opposed to them. There's opposition. We make them an enemy, the person that we are meant to love. Listen to what John Calvin says about this. God requires a mind so admirably arranged. My mind is not admirably arranged, by the way. That's not even the end of the quote yet. Admirably arranged as not to be prom- prompted, even prompted in the slightest degree contrary to the law of love. That's all of us, right? Right? Even if you came in today and you're like, I'm just happy to see everybody. Everything's going great. Calvin says that what this commandment tells us, and I think he's right about this because he's a lot smarter than me, he says that God's requirement for us is that we wouldn't even be prompted to the slightest degree, not even a hint of covetousness. Why? Because God himself is not covetous. There's nothing that we have that God wants. There's nothing that we have that God needs. Yes, he wants our hearts. He wants our lives. We know that, right? But what I'm saying is when it comes to possessions, when it comes to things that that God, God doesn't look at something and say, that's something I can't have. And now I'm going, I hate that person for it. God is not covetous. And we are to be the people of God. But even the slightest hint, the slightest hint. Now let's go to the opposite end. One of my favorite Christmas movies and yours too, is It's a Wonderful Life. And the bad guy in there is excellent. You don't like It's a Wonderful Life? I saw that. Just kidding. It's okay. It's Actually, it it flopped in the movie theaters, I I found out. And it was apparently a lot of people don't like it, so that's okay. But Mr. Potter, you remember Mr. Potter? The the mogul, the guy in that, that fancy wheelchair in the movie? And he was buying up all of George Bailey's family's homes, and he was taking over the neighborhood and charging outrageous rent to people who couldn't afford it. And his goal throughout the whole movie is just to accumulate and accumulate and get more and more and more. And and the building and loan that the Bailey family runs is working against that. They're trying to make homes affordable for people and trying to serve their community. And in the beginning, before George George Bailey's dad passes away, he says this great line that defines Mr. Potter and sets the course of the rest of the movie for you very clearly. He says, Mr. Potter hates anyone who has something he can't have. And if you've seen the movie, you know, you can see, uh, yeah, that is his goal. It is an endless goal, isn't it? When covetousness creeps in, it never gives up. It will never stop fighting. It has to be killed. We can see this kind of wicked covetousness in other people. And we so often think, oh, I'm immune to that. I'm not nearly, I'm not a Mr. Potter at all. But do you remember the scene when Potter calls George Bailey to his office and offers him a job? Do you remember that part? And George sits there and there's this great scene again. Again, sorry if you don't like the movie, that's okay. But... There's this great scene. Uh, Mr. Potter hands him a cigar and he sits there and he's he's like, okay, yeah, this is going to be great. And then he stops and he looks at the cigar. He realizes he received something from someone who has only been taking and covetousness and evil in their desires. And he looks at it, and he goes, I can't do this. Absolutely not. But for that moment, he was all in. Because again, we can look at other people. We can look at Mr. Potter and we can look at people in our lives who we're like, oh, this guy's never going to be satisfied. But can you think of any of those people that if they came into your life and said, hey, would you like to share in my covetousness? It's not so bad over here. We can't, we can't lie and say that it wouldn't at least be appealing for a moment. If not, consume us. And this is how far we are from understanding God's law. How how easily sin creeps in. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 7. He says, if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. Those people that you know that don't know Christ, that you're like, oh, I just wish that they knew Jesus. I wish that they would act a certain way, perhaps, or I wish that things were... Paul says that before Christ, before the law, he wouldn't have known sin. The people that you work with, your neighbors, your relatives, your friends, they don't even know what they're doing. They're swimming in an ocean of sin. And it's all they've ever known. It's all we ever knew before knowing Christ as well. So Paul goes on to say, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Because covetousness is one of the sneakiest of of our, our, our sinful habits, our sinful inclinations and of our temptations that we face. So what consumes my thoughts? I need to ask that question. You need to ask that question. What is it that I see repeated on my bank account? What is it that takes over when I have other responsibilities and I say, no, i got to put those responsibilities aside so that I can get this thing? What is it that I find my identity in? If I could just have this thing that someone else has, then I would finally be a, what, successful person? Just like the Bible calls you to be successful people, right? No, he calls you to be God's people. He calls you to be his. That's it. We need that kind of freedom, don't we? We need the freedom to be content in who Christ is for us not what we can make ourselves into. We see this in how we build our identity and how we deal with our bank account. In a very simple way, opening up your phones and seeing what your favorite apps are. In in all of this, we need to actually find that disordered desire that is the roots of all of these fruits in our lives. And those inordinate desires could be perhaps to feel valuable, to feel successful, as I said, to feel happy or fulfilled or comfortable, to feel fearless, to feel attractive, to feel whatever it is that we want to feel that we make ultimate in our lives, and we find a way by covetousness, by typing in our covetousness Google search engine, how can I express this? And then the second test becomes who has that thing that I really want? They are now my enemy. They are in my way because they have something that I wish I had. And that is where we see very clearly that the summary of these last commandments that boils down to our need to love our neighbor is that in every way, every way that we break all these commandments, we refuse to love our neighbor and therefore make them our enemy. So who is Jesus in all of this? As he comes into the world, he comes as the one who is the only content person to ever walk the face of the earth. And you have to be, don't you, to leave heaven and all the goodness of the presence of his Father to come down here with us, to take on human flesh himself, to live the life that we couldn't live on our own. He's the perfectly content one who had one holy desire to glorify His Father and therefore save His people. That's why He came. He did not come with a covetous desire because, in fact, the people that He came to save are meant to be His. He's not wanting something that ought not be His. He's coming for what is His own. And that's you. When he died on the cross, he died to pay the penalty for your sins, to be your substitute, to take your place. And by grace, he offers you eternal life in him because he's risen from the grave. He's conquered sin and death. Sinclair Ferguson, a preacher, theologian, author, smart guy, says this. The moment you give in to Christ is the moment you begin to learn contentment. Because Battling covetousness is not about us saying, I'm just never going to desire anything at all, and I'm going to be perfectly perfectly content. You can come up with covetousness on your own. You don't need to not see people. The solution is for us to give everything to Christ, which is impossible on our own, which is why it is essential for us to know that when we come to faith in Christ, he opens up our eyes to all of our disordered desires And he points us in his direction. That's called repentance. Turning from our sin, turning from our disordered desires, and not saying no more desires at all, but saying right and good desires. And listen to this, people, fulfilling desires, not desires that are going to leave you hanging. They're going to say, oh, I'm really glad I enjoyed that 18th piece of cake or whatever the thing is that we're tempted to do. But now that moment is over. When you're with Christ, the moment doesn't end. The moment of joy and satisfaction and commitment, contentment continues and increases even further beyond what you could imagine. If you were right now the most content in Christ you've ever been, you've only just tasted the contentment that he has for you in eternity. Isn't that incredible? When you see him face to face, what a day of rejoicing that will be, right? The song says. So by grace... We read 1 Timothy 6.6 that Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. God wants you to gain something in his son. And that it is not just the forgiveness of sins and a clean slate wiped off, but a, a replacement of your sinfulness with Christ's righteousness so that you can be brought in and loved the way the son of God is loved by God the father. Why do we covet? Simple thing. We don't rest in who we are anymore. We don't rest in in whom we rest, in Christ. We look to other things. We say, Jesus and dot, dot, dot. I will be happy if only I can get this one thing. And yet, godliness with contentment is great gain. And because Christ has died, because Christ has risen, because he is our substitute, he, the only godly one, he, the only content one, has granted both of those things to us. You are not godly simply because you are a perfect Christian and you get an A+. You're godly because Christ is godly. And when we look at these commandments and we look at the freedom to be content and freedom from covetousness, it's not that we're saying, okay, well, I guess I don't really need to worry about sin. No, you need to worry about sin. But you worry about it the way a soldier who knows he's going to win the battle worries about the battle. Because he goes into it confident, focused, clear-headed, sure of the outcome. that's what God's calling us to. And when we look at all the things beyond just our needs, Alistair Begg says in, in light of 1 Timothy 6.17, if you want to read that later, there's a great section where Paul is talking about how those who have riches ought not trust in them. Alistair says it is clear that whatever exceeds the basics of food and clothing... Which Paul says, we'll be content if we have food and clothing. Alistair Begg says, if there's anything that exceeds those two things, they are to be received and enjoyed. Enjoy the good things. Because listen, if the point of the sermon was at the end to just say, okay, don't desire anything, food and clothing, that's all you get. Can you imagine how long it would take for you to get your life to match up with that? Figure out what to do about your car. Figure out what to do about your home, about how many t shirts you have, about what you. There's so much. And we can let all of these things that we have be a blessing in our lives. We can enjoy them as long as we don't make them needs, as long as we don't make them little gods, as long as we recognize that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And nevertheless, what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he is our ultimate desire, he is our ultimate satisfier. So we don't need to justify the minutia of every good thing in our lives. We don't need to say, "Well, oh, I have a really expensive car because it's for ministry." And okay, good. Do that. Do ministry with your car or with your house or with whatever it is. Be wise with what God has given you to steward. Enjoy the blessings that go beyond simple food and clothing, but guard against covetousness. Christ says. That's what we need to do. And how do we do it? We're going to sing about it in a minute. I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul. I will trust in Him, no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. You're going to sing those words, or you're at least going to hear them at the end of our service. And that is the truth of what Christ does in our hearts is He makes us no longer trusting in anything else. He makes us no longer looking to the temporary treasures of this world for ultimate satisfaction, but we see it completely and perfectly in him. And that's what we need to walk in. Contentment that Christ has for us to keep learning it, because Paul says in Philippians 4 to do that, to depend on it and to testify to it. Verses 12 and 13 of Philippians 4 says, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then everybody's favorite Bible verse comes after that. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. Enjoy the blessings. Enjoy the above and beyond food and clothing. Because we have brothers and sisters in the world who are hoping for food and clothing today, aren't they? We have people that are lost, that don't know us, that are hoping for food and clothing today. And we should not say, I should not enjoy good things that the Lord blesses me with because there are other people who don't. But we should simply say, out of my abundance, I should give. I should be sacrificial. And you have to decide that on your own. It's not a black and white clear issue where you say, only make this amount of money and only enjoy this amount of fun. You've got to figure that out on your own. It can be tough. But it's meant to be good. It's meant to be an act of worship. It's meant to be something where you say, Lord, thank you for these good things. Help me to walk in contentment. Help me learn contentment like Paul did. Help me to depend on it and help me, most importantly, to testify to it. Sinclair Ferguson, again, says, Only when our Christ is big enough to satisfy us can we be content no matter our particular circumstances. Genuine contentment is realized both in our circumstances and with our circumstances. That is, that while the things are going on, you learn how to be content. And in the middle of and because of those things, you learn how to be content." That is what Christ has to offer you. And my friends, that is amazing. That is a great offer. Because the rest of the world the world would love to say, hey, once you get healthy, once you get your COVID shot, or once everything's okay, once this pandemic's over, everything's going to be great. Christ tells you you can be great now because you can be content in me. Isn't that a great offer? Isn't that good news? Is there anything better than that? And he's given us his spirit to worship him and to love our neighbors by his own power without the hindrance of discomfort or discontentment, rather. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I'm all about phone reminders and alarms and all sorts of things that is a helpful use of the blessing of a cell phone. (laughs) They can be used for terrible reasons, but they can also be used for really good reasons. I want to challenge you to whatever you use to remind yourself, if it's a phone or if it's a tablet or if it's just an ancient paper calendar that you hang on the wall, I want to challenge you every day this week to take a verse regarding contentment. The one I took was Hebrews thirteen five: Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let yourself put your eyes on something in God's word about contentment like that. Hebrews 13.5, if you want that one, it's a great one. Because it reminds me that I have freedom from covetousness, freedom to contentment, because Christ says he'll never leave me. Be reminded daily this week, I ask you, of the contentment that he's offered to you. So is there something that you could let go of this week and remain content? How could Christ satisfy and bring contentment into your life today? Are you willing to learn it, to depend on it, and to testify to it? We read from the Jesus Storybook Bible this passage in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Sell everything you have, all of your disordered desires, get rid of them. Put your desire in Christ and don't do it thinking, I hope this works out because it will. He will satisfy you. He's not going to satisfy you by making everything easy and perfect, but he's going to satisfy you by his presence, by his goodness, no matter what. I'm going to pray for you and then we're going to Commence with our communion time. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we can indeed be content in you from the first to the 10th commandment. We are reminded that you are all that we need and that all the sins that would distract us away from who you are, all of these commandments, Lord, they're not going to fulfill their promises, but you do. So Lord, help us to remember in the week ahead that you indeed are with us, that you love us. You have all we need in Christ. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name, amen.